So, we'll spend some time now talking, we're going to be taking off of what we just did in there, okay? Um, and the first topic we're going to be talking about, there we go, relative dating, okay? Now, to uh, give this a little bit of preface, um, either tonight we might get into it a little bit, but definitely tomorrow we will be talking about absolute dating. Relative dating and absolute dating are the two general methods of dating the rocks. And by dating the rocks, I mean in some manner figuring out how old they are. But um, relative dating and absolute dating are the two methods geologists use to figure out the sequence in which things happened, the order of events, and when they happened. Okay? Now, relative dating is going to be very directly related to the layers of the rock, okay? Um, I want you to just think about this. When you first saw the three layers that you had there, which layer had to be in place first? I heard somebody say the bottom. Who said that? Yes. Just by... Uh, matter of reasoning, if you're going to have a sequence of layers, whatever layer is on the bottom has to have been there first, because it has to be in place before the next one is put on top of it, correct? That's just common sense. That's just logic. Well, as um, simple or as basic as that idea may be, and I'm having trouble advancing here. Oh, there, there it went. <laughs> Some of the main principles that are related to relative dating. <clears throat> the, okay, the one we were just talking about is the principle of superposition. Yeah, it's given a fancy word, but the concept of superposition is just simply that when you find multiple layers of rock, the one that is on the bottom is going to have to necessarily be older than the one above it, which is going to be older than the one above it. And so, which one's going to be the youngest? The one on the top, okay? That's all superposition is, okay? As I said, simple concept, pretty easy, pretty straightforward, okay? Now, this other one here, principle of original horizontality. Yeah, again, big phrase, but what it means is that the layers were originally laid flat, okay? Now, the reason this principle exists is because when you go out and look at layers in a stratigraphic column, they're not always flat and horizontal anymore. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of them are going to be tilted or folded. <coughs> and the principle here is that when the sedimentary layers were first laid down, they were laid down as a flat, horizontal surface rather than something at an angle, rather than something with folds in it, okay? And again, this is just based on common sense. You take a big old bucket of sand and you dump it, and what happens? It's going to fall out, and you're going to have the deepest sand in the middle, but it's going to spread out, isn't it? If you keep repeatedly pouring more and more piles of sand in one spot, it's going to spread out further and further and further, and you're going to get a more or less long, flat layer. Okay? Again, there might be some imperfections in it, but that's the basic idea here. You're going to start with your layers originally being horizontal. Okay? <clears throat> Next, we have the principle of lateral continuity. There are 
things that happen to the layers after they've been laid down. And one of them is they get eroded, weathered and eroded away. We talked about that um, in the experiment, correct? And so sometimes a layer that used to be there gets eroded away and now you've got a gap. The principle of lateral continuity says that if there's a noticeable gap, there was probably a layer in between. And so when you're trying to reconstruct what happened, you can bridge in between. Make, in your imagination, put together the missing piece that has been taken away. Okay? And then finally, we have taken into account inclusions and cross-cutting. <clears throat> Both of these are referring to a similar sort of thing. An inclusion refers to when a piece of one layer gets incorporated into the next layer above it. Okay? Once again, if you've got a piece of one layer incorporated into the layer above it, which one had to be there first? The bottom, the piece, okay? You have a layer, and then a piece of it gets ripped up through weathering and erosion, and then it gets incorporated into a new layer. So the inclusion is older in the sense that it came from the rock that was already existing, okay? That's taking into account the inclusions. Dikes and faults. A dike is a layer of rock, typically igneous rock. And kids, what's igneous rock? It formed from lava. It came from cooled molten rock. Yes. Typically, dikes are formed from molten lava, molten lava, molten lava <clears throat> that has um, worked its way through layers of sediment. And typically, that's not going to follow the pattern of the existing layers. It's going to cut across it. Okay. And so, again, whatever is cutting across the layers has to be younger than the layers it's cutting across, okay? And faults, a fault is just when the layers actually break and shift. And again, that's going to have to happen after the layers have been formed, right? Okay, again, this stuff is straightforward. Pretty simple. <clears throat> so let's take a look at this one here. First of all, ignore the dikes. Okay, we've got three of them there, but ignore those dikes for a moment, and let's just look at what's in the background. Using what principle are we going to tell that this layer is the oldest and that one's the youngest? Right, they obviously they have to just by inspection, but the principle is called the principle of superposition. Okay? Now, let's look at the dikes. <clears throat> Between dike A, B, and C, which dike was there first? C. Right. Because it's being cut across by dike B, correct? There's our cross-cutting principle coming into play. If it's cutting across something, if dike B is cutting across dike C, dike B is younger than dike C. And then dike A, how's that compared to B and C? It's the youngest. B's younger than C because it cuts across it. A is younger than B because it cuts across it. Okay? Whoops. Whoops. Wasn't working before. Now it was moving too fast. All right. Here's where the principle of superposition comes into play. Now, notice we've got this canyon here, right? 
Do you think that originally there had to have been some rock in there? Yeah. If we follow the principle of original horizontality, this sandstone layer here, for example, it didn't just form and then stop right there. We imagine it must have originally been horizontal and continued onward. So if it's missing here, it must have eroded away. There's the principle of original horizontality coming into play. Now, we'll do another application of original horizontality. Where did that layer of sandstone go? Obviously some of it eroded away, but where is it over here? It's very likely that this sandstone here is the same sandstone, sandstone there, which means that this shale, this bit, this or a pinkish reddish part here is this shale over here and so forth, okay? So not only can we tell using original horizontality that clearly things had to have eroded away here, we also get the idea that things have shifted. This side over here has been shifted up and this side over here has been shifted down, okay? So you can see how we're kind of starting to reconstruct what happened, right? This layer had to have been laid down first, then this one had to have been laid down on top of it, then this layer was laid down, then this layer was laid down, then this one, then this one, then this one. At some point, they shifted relative to each other, and then the erosion took place, right? We're getting a sequence of events. Again, this is relative dating. We're figuring out the sequence of events, but we're not necessarily telling when things actually happened. We just know the order. Okay, <clears throat> one more. And this one's a more um, realistic one in the sense that this is actually representing the Grand Canyon here. Um, but what I want to focus on is this part right here. See that line right there? Can any of you tell me what happened there? Using the principles we just talked about. Something shifted, yes. These layers down here must have been in place because whatever happened up here had to have happened after it, correct? So these layers were originally laid down. Superposition tells us this is the oldest, that's the youngest of this group. Principle of original horizontality tells us that those layers were originally lying flat. So sometime after this layer being laid down, the entire ground got shifted tilted, and then the top surface got eroded away, and then new layers started being formed on top of it, okay? This sort of thing, where we have layers tilted, eroded away, and the new layers put on top of it, is referred to as an angular unconformity. I know, scientists like to use big words, don't they? Angular unconformity, okay? And uh, that still, even though there's nothing preserved there, it still tells us, or gives us an indication of what was happening. It was during that period of time that the tilting took place, that the weathering took place, and so forth. Okay? So, here's a question for, for you. When we look at things like this, we can figure out the order in which things took place. Is there any indication as to when it took place? Like an actual time, date, or how long it took place?
you know, some of the yeah, so some some of the, some of the adults. I could tell what they what they want to say. <laughs> no, right? When we use absolute, oh, sorry, when we use relative dating like this, it's very helpful to figure out the order in which things took place, <clears throat> but it doesn't put a specific date on anything, which means we can tell the sequence of events, but not how long it took and not how long ago it happened. <clears throat> Alright, one more example, and I figured this one would be appropriate because we're looking at the entire state of Kansas here, and we're all familiar with Kansas, right? Yeah. Alright, so this, what you're looking at here is a generalized geologic map of Kansas. The colors over here show you the corresponding layers over here, okay? Now, do understand that this is imagining all of the soil and everything if that was all gone, okay? This is not taking the soil into account. This would be everything underneath the soil, okay? Um, still superficial in the sense that it's the rocks that are most closest to the surface. But this is what the layers of rocks in Kansas would look like. Pay particular attention to this line right here. If we were to cut through Kansas, through that line, and look at it on end, it would look like, give me a moment, there we go, it would look like that. From A to A is the same line as in the previous illustration, okay? But now we're looking at a cross section through it, all right? <clears throat> And once again, we're seeing multiple layers of rock. You can see a few things going on here, right? There's a little bit of a fault right there. Things have slipped past each other a bit. There's a little bit of folding. You can apply the same principles that we talked about to just the entire state of Kansas, right? By the way, geologically, the state of Kansas is kind of boring compared to other places like Colorado and so forth. Okay? There's a lot more activity, a lot more complex stuff going on. But... It does um, help in the sense that, yeah, we can actually see what, can, what uh, Kansas rock a lot easier and the sequence events a lot better. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what we have here is a geologic column. As you look at this, do any of these names over here? Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, Tertiary. Any of those look familiar? Yeah? Yeah, Jurassic, that, that word has become um, quite common in usage these days thanks to a certain franchise. Um, but this is a typical type of geologic column that you would see where things are put in order Ages are put over on the side. Uh, these numbers here represent millions of years. And then different layers are put into different blocks. The Paleozoic era, the Mesozoic era, and the Cenozoic era. Okay? Now, first thing you need to know about the geologic column. This was constructed largely using relative dating. Okay? Yes, if we these dates over here, those come about through absolute dating. We'll talk about absolute dating later and get into that. But the actual sequence of the rocks itself 
was basically um, hundreds of years of work of geologists correlating and comparing layers from around the world. Okay? This basically started in Europe in the really the earliest of the 1800s. Technically, it kind of started in the latest 1700s. So this is accumulation of 200 years of work, identifying rocks, layers, naming them, describing them, comparing them and correlating, to, correlating them to layers of rock on other places of the earth, and then compiling them into one giant geologic column you're looking at here. First thing you need to understand, if we're using this, well, first thing, I already said that. Another thing you need to understand about this, <clears throat> if we're dealing with absolute dating, again, we're, I'm sorry, if we're dealing with relative dating, we're going to ignore the absolute dating for now. If we're dealing with relative dating, do we put times on any of that? Not necessarily. Okay? Yes, it is true that geologic columns like this are always, almost always, going to have Millions of years labeled on them. They're going to be referred to as Cambrian, Ordovician, and so forth, periods, because they represent periods of time. And then the Paleozoic era, representing long periods of time, and so forth, okay? But that only comes about after you've applied absolute dating. The point I'm trying to make is this. A geologic column like this the sequence is more or less correct. It's the interpretation of what, what formed this geologic column and the events that formed it that we differ from most people, most secular scientists, okay? Harkening back to things we talked about before. A lot of this is, is a sedimentary rock, kids, so what could have laid down most of this? The flood, okay? Again, the sequence of rocks isn't necessarily wrong. It's the interpretation that they're millions of years old that is wrong, okay? Uh, where'd it go? Okay. Um, here is, you've got a similar sort of geologic column occurring over here. Same names, Paleozoic, Mesozoic, and so forth. This time, however, these layers have been applied to a biblical history, looking at the Bible, looking at the flood sequence, and the events that occurred after the flood. You've got um, Babel in there, Abraham, and so forth. And so, in this case, some creation scientists have done some work trying to figure out, okay, if the geologic column, if the sequence is accurate, how can we correlate that sequence to what actually happened as described in the Bible, okay? And so, you don't necessarily have to discard these names altogether. Yes, they often have a connotation of time, but you can just as easily talk about Cretaceous rocks as you can talk about the Cretaceous period. You can just as easily talk about the um, Devonian rocks as you can the Devonian period, okay? It's a slight change of language, but it at least helps us keep the correlations straight, even if we have a different interpretation of what actually caused them, okay? And this is a more complete list. Um, in case you were wondering how uh, detailed this can get, there's the periods we saw earlier, Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, 
uh, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, and then the tertiary over here. Each one of those can be further broken down into smaller units. Usually it's uh, early, middle, and late, uh, but each of those can be further broken down into units and so forth. Okay, And again, most of the time these are used to refer to time periods, but you can just as easily use them to refer to specific rock units. The sequence is still good. It's the events that occurred that we would interpret differently compared to a secular, um, to secular scientists. Okay? All right. <clears throat> so if we have this sequence of rocks and we believe that it was caused by the flood because these <clears throat> Because these are mostly sedimentary rocks, we've already talked about how sedimentary rocks are largely affected or formed by the action and movement of water. Let's now talk, let's now turn our attention to the flood itself and talk about what was actually causing the flood. On a very basic level, what was causing the flood? Did somebody, was that somebody shouting God back there or was that the kids shouting something in the back? <laughs> God, okay, thank you, Andrew. That is actually true. That was the answer I was looking for. <clears throat> yes. We know from Scripture that the, um, that the flood came about because God sent it deliberately. And this is directed to the children. What was the per reason God sent the flood? Why would God want to do that? Yes, <clears throat> because the wickedness of man had grown great on the earth and God was going to wipe them away. Okay? So very good. <clears throat> so now we've got the purpose down and we've got the original cause, God himself. Okay? Now, um, let's try to get into a little bit more of the details here. Um, where exactly was the water for the flood coming from? Well, in the Bible, in Genesis 7, where the actual events of the flood take place, we're told about two sources of the flood. Sources of water for the flood. First are fountains of the great deep. It says that the fountains of the great deep burst open and the windows of heaven were opened. Depending upon which translation you're using, they are sometimes referred to as the floodgates of heaven. Okay? So that it's just a different translation of the same thing. <clears throat> now, we'll talk a little bit more about the windows of heaven in just a moment. Frankly, this is the one you probably hear more people talk about. What is that going to be immediately correlated with? Rain. Yes. And, of course, we measure the flood in terms of rain, right? How long did the rain last? 40 days and 40 nights. Very good. Thank you. So, yes, we correlate events in the flood with rain. Obviously, rain is a very visible thing. We all know when it's raining outside. So that's something that we often focus on when we talk about the events of the flood. Here's the interesting thing about it, though. This is actually mentioned second. Fountains of the great deep are mentioned first. Now, don't know if this has any particular significance, but at least some uh, creation geologists have suggested that maybe it was actually the fountains of the great deep that had a bigger contribution <clears throat> to the floodwaters rising than the rain itself did. Okay? But let's talk about some of the interpretations of the fountains of the great deep. Uh, the meaning of the great deep is pretty simple and straightforward. And that's referring to the ocean. Okay? So whatever the fountains of the great deep 
were. It was something in the ocean that was shooting something out. Okay? What would be the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about something coming up out of the ocean? Okay, a lot of people are going to think water, and I did put that one up there. Maybe associated with geysers. You know what a geyser is, kids? What's a geyser? <clears throat> water coming up out of the ground because of pressure. Yes. <clears throat> and so, one idea is that there was some sort of subterranean reservoir of water that broke open and um, let water out into the oceans, flooding the land, okay? Another idea, which isn't necessarily exclusive, duh, isn't necessarily exclusive. It could be that both of these were occurring, but the one that I like better to explain things is that it was, may have actually been referring to volcanism. Um, there's a lot of volcanic activity occurring in the oceans, on the ocean floor. Uh, we'll be showing a picture of the Earth, of, the, glo of the, the globe, in just a moment. And I'll point these out. <clears throat> but there are places on the Earth where there is, even to this day, a lot of active magma coming up out from underneath the ground, forming new ocean floor. Okay? And so the basic idea here is that during the flood, for one reason or another, the amount of volcanism just was increased tenfold, a hundredfold, many times over. Okay, With all of this increased volcanic activity, you're going to have a whole lot of addition of magma to the ocean floors. And the idea is that with all this heat being produced, the ocean floors would have actually been raised up, and this would have displaced a lot of the ocean spilling them over onto the land, okay? Now, if you have all this heat occurring, you're also going to have a huge amount of water vapor being sent up into the air, which would then cool and precipitate back to the earth as rain, okay? This is one of the reasons why I like this, this explanation, because it ties both the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven together into one process. You had increased volcanism, especially in the ocean floor, which raised the ocean floor, spilling water onto the land, plus a huge amount of heat being released, which would have set jets of stream, stream uh, jets of steam, way up into the atmosphere, where it would then condense and fall back down to the earth as rain. Okay? Now, um, now let's return to Windows of Heaven and point out a detail about this one. I say there that it's probably figurative. Um, some people have interpreted the Windows of Heaven quite literally. That there was a reservoir of water up above the sky that broke open and that's where the rain came from. Um, I interpret the windows of heaven a little bit more figuratively, partially because of these verses here. Um, these are two of, I think there's only a handful of places where the phrase windows of heaven is actually used in the Bible. And two of them are right here in 2 Kings 7. <clears throat> and to put, some, put this in some context, 2 Kings 7, this was when the kingdom of Syria 
was besieging Samaria. Again, focusing on the children here, what was Samaria? I know this has nothing to do with geology. We just completely switched to history now, biblical history. But um, what is Samaria? Do you know? I believe it's the capital of the southern kingdom. No, northern kingdom, I'm sorry. Capital of the northern kingdom. Um, so during this time, this is when the time of, this was during the time of Elisha, but um, the kingdom of Syria had surrounded Samaria, had um, been around it for a long time, cutting off supplies. The city was running low on food and stuff, and the people were afraid that they were just going to starve themselves out, okay? Elisha comes along and says, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Basically what he's saying is the uh, cost of stuff will go down, implying that there's going to be abundance. Okay? Um, then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? The captain was basically mocking Elisha, saying, Yeah, right. If God himself opened the windows of heaven and just rained down stuff on us, it wouldn't even happen. Okay? And then um, Elisha says, You shall see it with your own eyes, but shall not eat of it. Um, I've put two references there, because while this is directly a reference to verses 1 and 2, basically the exact same thing is repeated in 18 and 19. Okay? So the, the actual events and everything isn't terribly important, but what I wanted to point out is that the use of the term windows of heaven here is meant figuratively. It's not referring to a specific, actual, real window in heaven. It's being used to represent a breaking forth of abundance. Okay? And this is a big part of the reason why I do consider windows of heaven as it relates to the flood to be more a figure of speech to talk about the abundance of rain as opposed to an actual event releasing waters from heaven. Okay? That was a long way to go about to say that. Okay? Anyway, so from this point on, we're going to talk about this idea of increased volcanism spilling the oceans onto the land and creating these plumes of steam into the air producing the rain. Okay? Now, how could this have come about? Well, to talk a little bit about how all of this could have occurred, let's talk a little bit about what geologists study and acknowledge happened on Earth. Okay? Um, as you look at the map here, have any of you ever noticed that the continents kind of seem like they fit together like pieces of a puzzle? The obvious one is right here, right? <clears throat> this tip of South America there looks like it would fit rather nicely into Africa. This part of Africa here would fit roughly about right there. This part of Europe would actually fit fairly snugly right in there, it does look indeed like the continents could have at one time been together. And in fact, geologists do hypothesize that the continents did used to fit together in one large continent which is referred to as Pangea. 
Um, fortunately, the name isn't up there. I forgot to make sure that it was uh, visible. But this is the idea of what Pangea would have looked like. Now, I do want to highlight that the idea of Pangea is based on more than just the fact that the continents look like they fit. There is a lot of other evidence supporting the idea that the continents used to be connected together in one big continent. Okay? Some, whoops, some other examples, uh, some other pieces of evidence. You find similar rock layers and fossils here in South America as you do over here in Africa. Um, the way the seafloor appears here gives an indication that this is the way things work. It's very faint, but do you kind of see this lighter line right down the middle? Do you see that there? That's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. That is where volcanism is active to this day. You have new lava and magma coming up out of the ocean, filling in cracks and creating new seafloor right in the middle. Well, if you're creating new seafloor in the middle, that does imply that at one point things have been pulled apart, haven't they? And so if you work that process backwards, the Atlantic Ocean at one point didn't even exist... And therefore, you had something that looked a little bit more like this. Okay? As I said, there's more lines of reasoning than just that. It would take an entire semester-long lecture to get through all the details of this idea. But to put things in a, big, in a really big nutshell, the, uh, it is believed that the continents used to form a single continent, and that single continent is referred to as Pangea. <clears throat> now... Um, naturally, according to secular scientists, this would have happened millions of years ago. They put the breakup of Pangea at roughly 80 to 70 million years ago. Okay? Now, again, that's based on, that's based on absolute dating. We'll get into absolute dating later. But, Continuing a theme we've talked about before, what's an event that happened in history that could possibly be associated with significant breakup of the continents? The flood. You're getting the hang of this, guys. Very good. <laughs> all right? So how could this have worked? Okay? Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit more about plate tectonics. And by the way, this is what we're talking about here. Um, the idea that the continents were pulled apart, the idea that the continents can move relative to one another, that's all wrapped up in a big idea in geology called plate tectonics. The idea of plate tectonics is that <clears throat> the continents and the ocean are on these large structures referred to as plates. These plates exist in the crust, technically on the crust. This is the crust right here. This is actually the upper part of the mantle, and this is more of the mantle here. Again, kids, we talked about this earlier today. You've got the crust on the outside, that's the cold, hard rocks, and then you've got the mantle down below it, which is the uh, hotter, more plastic rocks, right? So it's actually the uppermost layer of the mantle and the crust together that creates the plates. And again, these are moving relative to each other. It is believed they are being moved relative to each other because of convection cells deeper in the mantle. And convection cells, I'm going to have to mention this now because it's going to become important later. Convection cells are driven by heat. It's driven by 
hot plastic rock moving upwards because it's been um, it's lighter and it's less dense and it wants to get to the surface and then colder rock fall, falling back down and if you connect those together in one big cycle you've got basically something like a conveyor belt okay and it is thought that something like that or a similar process is what is moving these plates around the surface of the earth and it's the interaction of these plates that we have things like uh, volcanic chains. You see a lot of volcanic chains next to oceans. The reason is because you got oceanic plate that hits the continental plate and just dips underneath it. Friction here melts the rock, creates magma. You get your lava and volcanoes and so forth. Okay, again. This is all part of this bigger idea of plate tectonics. Here's another aspect of plate tectonics. This is an interesting one. Here you've got continent crust and continent crust running into each other. They're both too big and they're too light to subduct under the other. So you know what happens? They smash together and basically creates a big mountain range. To give you an example of where this is thought to have taken place, look at Asia over here. Do you notice anything missing? India. India. What's right here? India. Mountain ranges. That's where you've got the Himalayas. And yes, India's there too. <laughs> um, so I wanted to point this out that, um, whoops, if this is correct, India actually used to be down here when the thing split up, it actually traveled all the way across and crashed, quite literally, into the rest of Asia, forming a mountain range much like you see happening there. Okay? All right. What I talked about there with plate tectonics, the whole process of one plate dipping under another, creating magma and creating... Um, mountain ranges, the crashing of two continental plates together creating a big mountain range like the Himalayas, the fit of the continents together and all that sort of stuff. Those are things that we can observe rather directly and yes it requires some speculation to get this whole idea of plate tectonics together but they are fairly reasonable assumptions to make. Okay? <clears throat> this is why some creationists have proposed the idea of catastrophic plate tectonics. It basically incorporates everything we were talking about there. That the plates are mobile, that they can move about, and this was mentioned earlier today, but they are moving even today. We do have satellites that can um, measure the position of places on the continents and it has been confirmed that even today they are moving just a few centimeters a year which is very little compared to the entire continent, but they're still moving, okay? And according to a long ager, somebody who believes that the earth is millions of years old, they would believe that the continents moving at about that rate is the break up, is uh, how fast they were moving in the past. And that's why they would put the breakup of Pangea at about... 80 million to 70 million years old because you needed that much time, in part because you needed that much time to get the continent separated, okay? The idea of catastrophic plate tectonics says instead <clears throat> that things were kind of primed 
for a breakup. If you presume that there was a weak spot down here, so basically between what is today South America, Africa, North America, and Europe, you can actually get these continents to spread and separate from each other in a very short time, read months or a couple years, if you have an influx of heat. Why heat? Remember those convection cells driven by heat. If you have heat, things are going to be a lot more plastic and a lot more mobile. And if you take the same idea of the crust and the upper parts of the mantle forming plates which are movable, you can actually start from this with weak spots along, the, along here and along other places so the continents break fairly easily and you can have them spread and split basically into where, to where they are today in, as I said, a relatively short period of time. And again, that's the idea of catastrophic plate tectonics. Based on the, what the name is called, when do you suppose it's proposed this happened? During the flood, which was a pretty big catastrophe, right? But here's the thing. That heat would also create a lot more volcanism, especially along the newly forming Atlantic Ocean. And as we said before, that volcanism could cause the oceans, the ocean floor, to rise up, spilling the oceans onto the surface of the earth, causing those plumes of steam, causing rain. In other words, that whole idea of catastrophic plate tectonics is connected to that interpretation of the uh, fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven. So it and again, this is part of the idea, part of the reason why I like this idea, because it does tie all those things together into one fairly large theory, but it does tie it all neatly together in one large process. Okay? <clears throat> now, at this point, we're going to, you know, I'll, I'll leave it, you leave it here. Um, at this point, we're not going to directly address uh, where all this heat came from. We'll actually get into that on Saturday and talk about well, tomorrow and talk a little bit about um, that. But um, at this point, what I wanted you to take away is this. First of all, relative dating. It's not something we should be afraid of. The concepts are sound. The idea of figuring out a sequence of events from the layers of rocks is something that we who believe and accept the Bible can apply to the rock layers that we find. We just have to interpret it in the framework of the Bible, in the framework of the flood. Okay, And a very, we can do a very similar thing with plate tectonics. And... Um, that whole idea. The basic idea of how the plates could have moved. The basic idea that the plates did move to cause the continents to separate. The basic concepts of... <clears throat> Sorry, sometimes... There we go. The basic concepts of one plate dipping under another. That's all good. That's just based on things that we can observe. Again, not directly, but we can infer a lot. We just have to incorporate those things into the biblical framework and understand how this stuff occurred according to the history as described in the Bible. Okay? 
So, a critical issue at this point is, when did this all happen? That's what we're going to address tomorrow.